God bless you. I love you guys so much. Judges chapter 14. This is the third in a sermon series entitled Where the Wild Things Are. We're taking a look at the uh, monster kinds of emotions that sometimes haunt and even threaten our hearts. Last Sunday we talked about anger. Last Sunday night we talked about depression. This Sunday's a little bit different, but honestly, a little bit harder. Harder for me and in some ways perhaps harder for you. When we talked about anger as as a monster in the heart, as a wild thing in the heart, I think everybody gets that. And for the most part, those of you who heard that message and you felt uh, that that, that I was speaking to you, that that you struggle with anger, um, you understand that and you don't want to be angry and you're eager to turn from it. I, I, I get that and I expect that. Nobody wants to experience anger. Last Sunday night, we talked about depression as a monster that threatens the heart. And honestly, nobody wants to experience depression. Nobody wants to be depressed. But this morning, we're talking about a particular kind of love that haunts and threatens the heart. And this is why it becomes difficult. While nobody wants to be angry and nobody wants to experience depression, everybody wants to experience love. Everybody wants to be in relationships. Everyone wants to be special and treasured and cherished by somebody else. Everybody wants love. So today gets a little bit complicated. Today, though, we're talking about a particular kind of love. In many ways, this is what passes for love in the world. It's a made-up word we're going to use today, and the word is cupidity. Cupidity. Cupid is the little baby with the bow and arrow often associated with making people fall in love. That's Cupid. And then, of course, the last part of the word comes from stupidity. Cupidity is that special place where love and stupid meet. You understand? I didn't make the word up. It actually comes from a book by that title. The title of the book is Cupidity. 50 Stupid Things People Do for Love and How to Avoid Them. It's a pretty good book. The book is not the source of this sermon today, however. God's word is Judges chapter 14. God's word is the source of this sermon. Often the mistakes we make when it comes to love, we make because we tend to follow our feelings. We tend to follow feelings, and love is not a feeling. Spread the word. We read from 1 Corinthians 13 in this worship service already. Love is not a feeling. It's so much more. It is always action. But sometimes we follow feelings. We try to feel our way through love, and we always get in trouble when we do that. Now, one of the basic principles of, of, of the spiritual life and one of the basic principles of human nature is that our feelings are usually determined by our beliefs. Our, our feelings are shaped by our beliefs. If you believe that the person you're with is the only person that would ever love you, if you believe that the next guy who asks you out might be your last chance at having somebody, then that will definitely affect the way you feel about him. You'll feel desperate. Do you understand? The beliefs always affect the feelings. Now, as Christians, we should all believe that God's word is the final word on love and relationships. We should all agree to that, that God's word is the final word. The problem is, even for Christians, and I can say that because I'm a pastor, I know a lot of Christians. Even for Christians, oftentimes we know what God's word says about love and relationships, but somehow in the, in the chaos of cupidity in our hearts and minds, we begin to, to 
pursue love in ways that God's word does not allow. And this, my friends, is the very nature of cupidity. We begin to leave God in pursuit of love. And I promise you, if you're moving away from God on your way to love, when you get there, it won't be love. Do you understand me? To illustrate, let's take a look at Samson in Judges chapter 14. This dude is a champion of cupidity. Samson. A couple of things before we read. Remember that Samson's whole life has been devoted to God under what in his day and age was called a Nazarite vow. A a Nazarite vow. He was special. He was separate. He had a vow before God. It was actually three vows, three vows of abstinence. Samson had vowed before God that he would abstain from cutting his hair. So that's how Samson is famous for his long, long hair. He never, ever cut his hair. His hair was a sign of holiness, a sign of separation. It was a sign of his vow to God. First, he would never cut his hair. Second, he would always abstain from every kind of alcoholic drink. In fact, everything that came from the vine. Samson would never touch alcohol. That was a part of his vow. And the third vow of abstinence sounds strange to us, but it's a part of holiness. He would never go near anything dead, never approach death in any way, never close to anything dead. This is the three parts of his vow. Now, as we read the scripture, just watch him drift. Watch him drift. Judges chapter 14, verse 1. One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. His father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry, they asked? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife. The word pagan there is the important word. Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. His father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. At that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as if it were a young goat. But he didn't tell his father or mother about it. When Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked with the woman and was very pleased with her. Notice we are now seven verses in. He just now talked to her. Verse 8. Later, when he returned to Timnah for the wedding, he turned off the path to look at the carcass of the lion. And he found that a swarm of bees had made some honey in the carcass. He he scooped some of the honey into his hands and ate it along the way. He also gave some to his father and mother, and they ate it. But he didn't tell him he had taken it, the honey from the carcass of the lion. As his father was making final arrangements for the marriage, Samson threw a party. The the word there is is an alcohol party. This is a drinking party. Samson threw a party at Timnah, as was the custom for elite young men. When the bride's parents saw him, they selected 30 young men from the town to be his companions. So Samson said to them, let me tell you a riddle. If you solve my riddle during these seven days of this celebration, I will give you 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. 
But if you can't solve it, then you must give me 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. All right, they agreed. Let's hear your riddle. So he said, out of the one who eats came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Three days later, they were still trying to figure it out. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, not his wife, it understands it's a seven-day wedding festival, so it's his almost wife. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's almost wife, entice your husband to explain the riddle for us, or we will burn down your father's house with you in it. Congratulations. Did you invite us to this party just to make us poor? So Samson's wife came to him in tears and said, you don't love me. You hate me. You have given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. Haven't even given the answer to my father or mother, he replied. Why should I tell you? So she cried whenever she was with him and kept it up for the rest of the celebration. At last, on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging. Then she explained the riddle to the young men. So before sunset of the seventh day, the men of the town came to Samson with the answer. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson replied, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. Samson has a real way, doesn't he? Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 men, took their belongings, and gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened, and he went back home to live with his father and mother. So his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. So are the days of our lives, I guess we should say right there. You can often tell a lot about a love story by the way it begins. So let's take a look at this beginning. One day when Samson was in Timnah, stop, right there. Uh, This is really the first adult act of the man Samson. We've heard up to this point about his birth, his miraculous birth, and the way his parents had set him aside as a Nazarite, how the angel had appeared to his parents. We've been set up for a champion of the Spirit of the Lord. And the Scripture says that the Spirit of God was upon Samson. This is the basic contradiction of all of Samson's life. He has God's Spirit. He has God's Spirit moving in a powerful way in his life, and yet... Samson will continue through almost every one of his actions to contradict the Spirit of God. And that's the puzzle of Samson. And honestly, that's the puzzle of you and me. We often know exactly what God wants us to do, and especially in regard to relationships. We tend to know what God wants us to do, but there's something about the cupidity inside of us, something about our desire for love, something about those incredible longings to be with somebody. We will often walk straight away from God's spirit and do what we want to do in pursuit of love. It's, it's called cupidity. Samson's first act as a grown man is to go to Timnah. Now, Timnah is a Philistine town. The Philistines are pagans. They are not a part of the people of God. The the Philistines, in fact, are ruling over, and they are the enemies of the people of God. Samson has no business going to Timnah. So in these first words, already we recognize that Samson is going to a place where he ought not be. He's at the wrong place. Now, what's he doing there? 
We don't know. As far as we can see, the only thing Samson was doing in Timnah was cruising for Philistine chicks. Apparently, all he's doing is looking for girls. So Samson, one Friday night, gets on his camel and he goes down to Timnah. He, he drives around Sonic, you know. He drives around McDonald's and all he's doing is looking for women. He's just looking for women. He parks his camel out there by the marathon station and walks all the, watches all the other people go by. He's only looking for women. He's looking for women in the wrong place. And notice he actually finds one. And he has this very, very high standard for the women he will be with. What is his standard? What is his explanation for the woman he actually finally settles on? What makes her the one for him? She looks good. Yeah, she looks good. He has found a pretty Philistine woman, and now he wants her. He is focused like a laser now on this woman. So this is how the love story begins. Don't miss it. He's at the wrong place, looking for the wrong thing, for the wrong reason. Wrong place, looking for the wrong thing, for the wrong reason. This is not going to end well. Do you understand? And this is how it works. As I said, you can tell, about any, tell a lot about any relationship by the way it begins. And often, honestly, relationships that aren't going to go well, all of the warning signs are right there in the beginning for you. All of the warning signs are there. And the warning signs are here for Samson. If he were truly listening to the Spirit of God, truly listening to God's voice, he would not pursue this woman. He would never, ever begin moving toward this relationship. If he would listen to God, he would miss a lot of mess. But he's not going to listen to God. That's the first thing to notice about his cupidity. Every step he takes in this relationship, every step he takes to pursue this woman takes him one step further away from God. He starts out in in, in Timnah. He's at the wrong place. He's among the wrong people. These aren't God's people. The woman he finds is never going to be a godly woman. But that's not important to Samson. For some strange reason, this man who has the spirit of God is not interested in finding a woman who has the spirit of God. That is cupidity. It's not going to end well for him. He goes to Timnah, the, the Philistine town. And then I told you about his vow, how he was never supposed to approach anything dead. But in this story, all of this turns around the fact that Samson kills a lion, which perhaps he couldn't prevent. Perhaps he had to somehow fight. It was either him or the lion, you understand. Maybe he had to kill the lion. But as a faithful Nazarite, Once he had been in the vicinity of a dead animal, even if he killed it, his responsibility was to go back, shave his head, renew his vows, and start over. He was supposed to come back and renew his vows to God. Samson never does that. His vow before God is really not a very important thing to him. And so you see in the story, he, he kills the lion, and then he even returns to the dead carcass, eats the honey out of the skull. Do you understand? He has no qualms, no conscience whatsoever about his commitment to God. Later on at the end of the story, he kills 30 Philistine men and then goes to their dead bodies and takes their clothes off and gives them to the men at the wedding party. You understand? He continues to break his vows. He has no concern about his own faithfulness to God. 
No concern whatsoever. He's supposed to abstain from alcohol, but notice there, all the Philistines tend to throw uh, drunken parties at the, the seven-day feast of the wedding. So Samson hosts himself. He hosts a seven-day drinking party. He has no concern, no tender conscience whatsoever for his vows before God. And he's getting married. Are you listening to his story? Is there anything for you to learn here? For one thing, that, that choice to get married, any choice to involve yourself in a relationship where you're going to put your whole heart into it, that is a terribly important choice. I can't imagine that you would not guard your own heart, as Scripture says do. I can't imagine that you would so freely involve yourself with someone who might break your heart. But this is exactly what Samson does and exactly what so many people do. They actually get further and further away from God the more involved they get with other people romantically. Do you understand? They make these choices about who they'll date or who they'll marry, and they do it with no consideration about their relationship to the Spirit of God or how God might be leading. I, I promise you, because I know that Samson has the Spirit of God, I know that early on, at some point in this story, early on, God's spirit must have told Samson, must have directed him. He must have had that check in his own heart that said, this is not right. This woman is not right. You're going in the wrong direction. I know this because God's spirit always leads God's people. And somehow in this relationship, Samson is going to neglect to listen to God's voice. And in your relationships that are outside of God's will, you do the very same thing, and it's cupidity. You do not fly past the warning signs. And if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, you're always going to have that check in your heart. The Holy Spirit is always going to convict you that what you're doing is wrong, that this is the wrong person for you, that this is the wrong place for you. The Holy Spirit is going to tell you to get out with your heart while you still can. And you are a fool, a fool not to listen to his voice. You always listen to God's voice. Always. Of course, it's not just God's voice. Not just God's voice. Verse 3, his father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry, they asked? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? Now notice, it's not just God's voice. Even the parents here are waving their arms saying, no, this is wrong. You can't marry this girl. You can't do this. This isn't right. She's not right for you. Even the parents understand this. But Samson is not going to listen. In the old days, y'all may not know this because so many of you are so young and tender, but in the old days, in a wedding ceremony... The minister would stop very early on in the proceedings and he would say, if there's anyone who has any reason why this couple should not be united in matrimony, then let them speak now or forever hold their peace. And then the minister would pause and wait. Nobody does that anymore. Why? Because you don't want to hear it. If somebody has a reason why you should not go ahead and marry this clown, you don't want to hear it now. You've already bought a dress. 
You got bridesmaids. You got a 10-foot-tall cake in the reception hall. You've already hired a DJ. Please don't say anything now. And I'll still have couples say, you don't say that, do you? You don't say that. You don't let anybody say anything, do you? I say no. But I'm thinking maybe we should. Maybe we should. Of course, the problem now is there are too many ex-wives out there and ex-husbands, and you'd be scared to death what other people might see in the relationship you're involved in. But I want you to understand something. If the people around you don't have good feelings about the person you're pursuing, if those who are godly in your life can look at this relationship and see that it's not good for you, if this is a relationship that you feel very uncomfortable when you bring this girl home to your parents or when you think about introducing this person to your church friends, I'm telling you, if you have this feeling that all of the wise and godly people in your life would not approve, this is another warning sign. You are a fool to blow past all of these warning signs in pursuit of this relationship. If everyone in your life can see that this is not right, if everyone else can see that this is not going to work well for you, you must listen. There's wisdom in listening to wise people. Now, don't miss the point of their objection. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry? There are preachers who have used this text to say right there, their problem is a racial problem. They don't approve of the fact that Samson is marrying outside his people. He's marrying a Philistine, so their opposition is to a a mixed-race couple. That is not the issue here. And as a matter of fact, while I'm saying it, that's not the issue in Scripture anywhere. Scripture does not forbid a mixed-race couple. I know that your grandmother from the South probably believed differently, but she wasn't coming from Scripture there. Scripture does not forbid a mixed-race relationship or a mixed-race marriage. What Samson's parents object to is a mixed-faith marriage. And what Scripture continues to forbid from cover to cover is a mixed-faith marriage. It is not important in God's eyes that the person you marry share your skin color. It is important in God's eyes that the person you marry shares your faith. Are you listening? It's a mixed faith marriage that is forbidden. And this is how so many of our parents and grandparents misled us through the years. Because we knew, we knew that if we brought a girl home of a different color, our daddy was going to hit the roof, kaboom. But if we brought home a non-Christian, as long as she was white or as long as she was black, as long as she was our color, it was going to be okay. Listen to me. Color doesn't matter. Faith matters. Samson has found a woman who does not know his God, does not love his God, and this is what his parents are objecting to. You can't marry this woman. She does not know God. She does not love God. And that is the issue. It is the issue. And it is ultimate cupidity to pursue a relationship with the person who does not share your faith. I know that all the cute cheerleaders in school, they may not necessarily be Christians. I know that all the hunky football players, they may not share your faith. I understand that a lot of the Christians are dorks and dweebs. I recognize that. I am one. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, 
You would be so much better off, so much better off in relationship with a Christian dweeb who's going to treat you like you should be treated, who's going to love you in a godly way, who's going to share your faith and share your heart. You're going to be so much better off than with some other person who does not share your faith and does not know your God and is not going to lead you to follow the Lord. It's a mixed faith relationship that is forbidden in Scripture. Please spread the word. And when you're thinking about the kind of person, boy, girl, that that your son or daughter may bring home, please forget about the skin color. It doesn't matter. Scripture never makes that an issue. But please make sure and teach your children that the important thing to find is a godly man, a godly woman. It is the matters of the heart that are going to affect your child for years and years and years. Of course, Samson's not looking at heart things. The only thing he cares about, the only thing that matters to him is that this Philistine woman has caught his eye. She looks good to him. That's it. That is it. She only looks good. Notice that he sees her. He apparently falls in love. He goes home. He starts looking at bridal magazines. He gets mom and dad to start planning the wedding. And he hasn't even spoken to her yet. The only thing he cares about is she looks good. That, my friends, is ultimate cupidity. But some of us are very guilty of this. Very, very guilty of this. When we're looking for a guy to date or looking for a girl to ask out, man, we're just really looking for someone pretty. Do you not understand how incredibly shallow, foolish, stupid that is? For one thing, everything that you see about this person that's so attractive now, in five years, it's going to hit the ground. You don't know this yet. You don't know this yet. But that really, really beautiful girl in high school, she has peaked early. She has peaked early. And at the 10-year reunion, you're going to go, I mean, you're not going to believe this woman in 10 years. I'm promising you this. And those guys right now in high school with with those abs of steel, you don't understand how abs turn to flabs. You understand? You you don't get it now. But Scripture continues to say that that these outer appearance issues, they're fleeting, they're temporary. They do not matter. Do not matter. In another city several years ago, I, I met a woman. and I wasn't a pastor then, but I met a woman who was telling me how miserable her marriage was. And she was talking about this guy that she married. I mean, he's her husband at that time. And she was saying, my husband, he's this horrible human being. She talked about how bitter and angry he was, how he didn't love her and didn't love the kids and thought only of himself. I mean, she described this guy as if he were a monster. And so I just said, why did you marry him in the first place? Why did you marry him? And this is what she said. This is what she said. I thought he would look really good in the wedding pictures. I thought he would look really good in the wedding pictures. Well, honey, if that's all you wanted, that's what you got. And that's stupid. That's stupid. Do you understand? All she wanted was a handsome man, and that's all she got. She just wanted a handsome man in the wedding pictures. And a lot of women are like this. They don't so much think about the marriage, the fact that they're giving themselves to this man. They're really just planning a wedding. Fifth grade girls walking around with bridal magazines. I'm telling you, there's something sick about that, that women just think about a wedding. And this woman, that's how far she saw. She just wanted to see herself as a beautiful bride in a picture with a handsome man. 
Let me just tell you right now, if all you really want is a picture with a handsome man, Adrian Cato will make himself available after this service. Vi, that would be okay, wouldn't it? I mean, if all you want is a picture with a handsome man, Stacy Hunt will be available after this service. At the Franklin campus, grab Charlie Brooks. I mean, if all you want is a picture with a handsome man, let's take care of that. Let's get that out of your system today. My goodness, looks don't matter. Samson's just thinking, this is a woman who looks good to me. It's all that matters to him. And he is setting himself up for a devastating, devastating run of it. But he doesn't even care. That, my friends, is cupidity. But let's switch sides. Let's talk about this woman for a moment. And we know next to nothing about her. Next to nothing. But just looking at this, I can tell a few things about her. First off, I can see that this woman is is somehow willing to get involved with the man who puts zero effort into the relationship. Samson puts no effort into this. He hasn't really talked to her or addressed her in, in any way. I suppose he says he loves her. I don't even know if it matters. All he really says is, she looks good to me. That's all he says. He puts no effort into this relationship. He does not pursue her. He does not woo her. He talks to her one time, but that's after they're already engaged. I'm telling you, this guy puts nothing into this relationship. Now listen to me right now. If you are in a relationship, a dating relationship with someone who puts no effort into it, you need to run. You need to run right now. This is a bad sign. You don't plow right past signs like that thinking you're going to get to love. When you get there, it won't be love. You understand? People who put no effort into the relationship, you do all of the pursuing. Every time there's a date, you have to make the call. And again, this is especially true and especially tragic for women who these days let men get by with so little in relationships. You give them sex because you think they'll give you love, but it doesn't work out like that, does it? And you never seem to learn. You never seem to learn. If you're a woman, you insist that that man pursue you. You insist that that man talk to you and come to understand and know your heart. Because if he doesn't know your heart, he can't love you. He doesn't love you. And if he shows no interest in knowing and understanding your heart, he is a loser. Run away from him. This is not going to go well for you. A man who puts no effort into the relationship, he's not ready for you. He's not worthy of you. Get away. Run. I guess nowhere is this more evident in our culture than in the incredible prevalence of couples living together. It's an incredible and alarming pattern now in our culture. And I don't understand why preachers don't say a word about it. Almost nobody says anything about it. I can tell you, it's hard to preach about that. It's very, very hard for me. But I've got to preach about that. No one in the world is explaining that this is wrong, that it is sin. And nobody is explaining to young women how that sort of relationship, that shacking up, how that is designed to break their hearts. Don't you get it? I mean, people say they're going to live together because they want kind of a trial run at marriage. It's sort of a a test drive of a relationship. But, But listen to me. Marriage, at its very definition, is commitment. Marriage is commitment. You can't test drive a marriage without commitment. And living together by its very definition has no commitment. 
I think you're assuming that you'll get all the benefits of marriage without the restraints of commitment. But marriage is commitment. So this is not a practice marriage. Honestly, in most cases, it's a practice divorce. Because the divorce rates for couples who live together are much higher, much higher than couples who do not live together before they're married. Are you listening to me? The divorce rates are much higher. I'm not making that up. That's not just preacher talk. Look it up for yourself. Couples who live together will split up 80% of the time. Most of them before they ever get married, but after marriage they tend to divorce at a much higher rate. It's a lie. It's a lie that you're believing that somehow living together will strengthen the relationship. And I'm telling you, that living together is designed to break the woman's heart. What are the two things most women say they want in a relationship with a man? They, of course, want love, but they want provision. They want a man who come through for her and take care of her. They want provision, and they want security. It's what women say they want. You know what men living with their girls, you know what they tend to say they want? They want an available sexual partner, and they want help with finances. This is an arrangement designed to break her heart. Do you understand that? She's going to have her heart broken. Because a man just wants financial help or an available sexual partner. The woman's hoping that if she lets him move in, that maybe he'll want her. It doesn't tend to work out that way. It's a lie. It's ultimate cupidity. So I don't understand why so many Christians run right through all of those warning signs, run right through. They ignore the voice of the Lord. They ignore the voice of everything that they know to be right and good. They do not listen to the word of God. They just simply try to make their own way through relationships. And it's not going to go well. It's where love and stupid kind of come together and it's designed to break your heart. So you see how it goes. At the end of the story, Samson's uh, fiance, whatever you call her, she ends up getting married to the best man. She marries his best man. Samson ends up with the whole riddle thing blowing up in his face. He has to pay up. He has to give 30 brand new tuxedos to all the men in the wedding party. It's a disaster. Just an absolute disaster. It's a disaster for the woman. She's in this relationship with this guy with this gorgeous long hair and rippling muscles, but he only pays attention to her when she's crying, nagging, or when he wants sex. It's the only time Samson pays any attention to her when she's crying, nagging, or he wants sex. And the seventh day of the feast, the seventh day is the big day. That's the day that the bride and groom come together in the bridal chamber. It's the big moment, but that's when she's still crying and nagging. So he goes ahead and tells her what she wants. So hopefully he can get what he wants. But Samson doesn't get what he wants either. Falls apart. At the end of the story, notice what it says there. Samson is furious, verse 19. He's furious, furious about what happened. Goes back home, live with mom and dad. Moves back into their basement, eats viney sausages out of the can. Man, what a winner. He's mad. That's a really funny part of the whole story. At the end of it, Samson is furious. I guess my question is, who's he mad at? Exactly who is he mad at? I mean, 
let's just kind of go over the main points again. It's Samson who goes to a place where he shouldn't have been and ends up with a woman he never should have been with, and he picks her for all the wrong reasons. I mean, he did that. It's, it's Samson who continues to ignore the voice of God and the voice of wisdom and the voice of his parents. I mean, Samson did that. Samson who plows right ahead with this relationship even though all of the signs say it's not going to go well. That's Samson doing that. It's Samson who abandons his commitment to God. He did that. It's Samson who goes back to the corpse of the dead lion and, and offends his vow to God. He did that. It's Samson who goes back and eats honey out of a dead carcass. I mean, who does that? Samson did that. And then comes back to be a big man at his bachelor party and makes that a big riddle and thinks he's a big man in front of all the guys with this stupid riddle. He, he tells us, I mean, he did that. And then nobody else told the secret to the riddle. He did that. He told his girl, I mean, he did that. He did all of it. You look at the whole story. Samson was making choices the whole time. He did all of this. So I just got to ask, who in the world is he mad at? I mean, when you look at the mirror at the end of the day, Samson, the only fool you're going to see is yourself. It's, it's Samson. So when you look in the mirror right now and you think about your relational life, what do you see? As Christians, we really must believe that God's word has the final word on love and relationships. But for some reason, you're wanting to think that you're different, that your situation is different, that you're old enough somehow, therefore you can have sex outside of marriage with no consequences. You somehow think that because your situation is different somehow, that God's word's going to bend for you. But that's not how it works. It's not how it works. And when your life comes into collision with God's word, understand God's word's not going to move, but your life is going to be shattered. And when you experience that shattering, when you experience that heartbreak and that loneliness, when you, like Samson, get to the end of one of these stories and you're so angry, angry at the girl, angry at the guy, angry at your parents, angry at the world, I just want to remind you, you did this. You ignored the signs. You were going for what you thought was love, but when you got there, it, it was not love. Can't imagine the fury, the disappointment, the heartbreak. But at that moment, my friend, you've got nobody to blame but yourself. You knew better. You should know better. The Bible is the final word. It, it is the truth. And the scripture says that the truth sets you free. And the truth does set us free. And right now, the, the truth of the word of God should be setting some of you free. You're trapped in relationships. You feel trapped. But I want you to understand, it doesn't need to go any further. You can get out now. If God's voice tells you that you're in the wrong relationship with the wrong person, you need to back out now before it's too late. If you're in a relationship and you're involved and you're involved physically and you're not married, you're in a relationship and you are not following God's ways and this is not a, a godly, godly loving relationship, you've really got to rethink this. You've got to change your ways. This is not going to end well for you. It, it, it is absolutely what scripture says. The truth will set you free, but often before the truth will set you free, truth will hurt you. Sometimes the truth hurts. And, and today, some of you looking at this story and listening to these words, it, it hurts. 
and you recognize that the only way to apply what you're hearing today is to do some very, very painful things in your life. I'm telling you, the truth will set you free. But sometimes right at first, it hurts. Everybody wants to be loved. We all want to be in relationships. It's complicated. We don't want to be hurt. We don't really want to hurt others. We just want to love and be loved. I want you to understand that God is the author of love. God himself is love. We need to listen to what he says about love. We need to pay attention to the boundaries he sets around our love lives and recognize that the God of love ultimately wants us to know love. He wants us to love him first, and then he wants to love us. I know you want love. I do too. You will not find love outside of God's will. Pray with me. Oh God, you are the one in the very first place who saw that it was not good for one of us to be alone and you brought Adam and Eve together and I, and I guess that's how it begins. That's why we continue, Lord, to, to leave our fathers and mothers and, and cling to our spouses and become one flesh, Lord. All of that was your idea. You were the architect and engineer of our hearts. You understand how we operate and you know us better than we know ourselves. So God, I pray today as pastor for these under the sound of my voice. I pray, Lord, as friend, I pray, Lord, as a man before you, that you would guide our hearts into love, into love of you first, Lord. Let our love for you, our relationship with you be that which we build everything else upon. But, but, but Lord, we want to be loved by other people too. Lord, we love to join our hearts together with friends and with lovers. Lord, we love to date and we love to be in relationship, Lord. And we do not want to see our hearts broken. So God, help us to listen. Listen to the truth of Scripture. Listen to the Holy Spirit's voice inside. Lord, let us not continue to blow down the wrong path, knowing, Lord, that it never, ever will lead us where we hope to go. Lord, there are people in this room today, people in the sound of my voice who, who need to have their hearts set free from ungodly, from wrong relationships, Lord. And I pray that today that truth will cut close to the heart. Set us all free. Lord, for those in this room, those who hear my voice and do not know love, do not have your love in their hearts, do not have that spirit's voice inside. I pray, Lord, that today the very first thing they do is enter into a loving relationship with you, O oh Jesus, Lord and Savior. Help us all, Lord, to make that relationship with you the first and the most right thing about us so that all the other relationships can take their place. We pray these things in Jesus' name, but, but for our sakes, amen. I don't know how you need to respond.